Welcome to Why in the World. My name is Ben Shepard and here we go with the second of our four-part mini-series with ultra-endurance athlete Luke Taberski. Incoming the rest of his MDS adventure, Luke's life-changing Nepalese experience and his first ever triathlon, which in true Taberski style was one of the hardest double Ironman distance triathlons in the world. Let's get stuck into part two of our four-parter with Luke Taberski. He is on Why in the World. The only thing was, the last final kilom- five kilometres, my knee sort of flared up and I thought, this is not going to be good. Like, I- I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty happy that I finished 21st or 22nd, whatever it was. But I knew my performance was going to decline rapidly because when you inflame your ITB, the only way to calm it down is to stop running. And I had 30-odd kilometres the next day. So I pushed myself the next day. I ran a little bit slower because of the pain. And I was still 36 position. And I'm just so, like, and my, when we, when we first get there, you team up with people of eight people, so yourself and seven others in your, in your tent, and you just pick whoever, and that's it. And I'm, everyone's like, oh, I've done this before. No, it's my first ever race. Yeah, I'm going to finish in the top 50. And they all thought that I was just... Just some sort of lunatic. Yeah, full of crap. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. And they're all from, from the military, basically, Five out of seven of them, I think. Yeah, no, yeah, four. No, five out of seven were all from the military, and they were like a bit of military banter, and yeah, no chance. First day, I come twenty second. They're telling all their mates and everyone around the tents, "Who's the top finisher in your tent?" Oh, we've got someone in like the top hundred, twenty second, our tent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The day before, they were talking absolute rubbish about me, and then the second day, they were more, they were more excited about where I finished than I was. They were going to check the leaderboard, and I was like, "Look, my race is done. My, my knees killing me. I started to get blisters on my toes after day two. And then day three happened. And this was when my race got interesting because, okay, like you're in the middle of the desert. You've got this ring of tents with a thousand people. You've got these little buckets with toilet seats on them about 50 yards away where you would go and do like a number two. But people would just pee wherever they wanted. Mm. At first, before the race, they're walking 50, 60 yards away. After day one, 30, 40 yards. After day two, 20 to 30 yards away. From day three, like you might, you, you hear this noise in the middle of the night, and you look up behind you, and there's a guy like six feet away, just pee. peeing. So it's unsanitary, you know. On day three, I head off. I'm about five, six k's into it, and my stomach started to gurgle, and I'm like, "Oh, this is not good." And the, one of the funniest things is we're on this plane that's dead flat, okay, in the desert. There's nothing around, and I'm like, six k's, and I'm like, I've got to do a poo. And I'm just like, this is not good. And I'm looking around side by the side of me, and there's like, there's nothing, there's nothing. And I spot this about 500 meters away, about two, three hundred meters off course, because everyone's sort of running on this small little trail. There's this little bush that's probably like three foot tall. So I made this beeline. Like there's hundreds of people running here, and I'm like going away here. I had to go do my business. The poo bush. And I just picked up a some sort of infection or some sort of like bacteria and I just had like a virus and I was just like this is not good so I come back into line and ran 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 at the end of the day I still was in the top 50 I was like 45th or something and then uh, my toes were like really bad I didn't realize how like how excessively my feet would sweat in the heat 
I went back to Oz and trained in 30 odd degree weather, but the weather in the desert that year was between 48 and 52 during the days. So my skin, you know when you're in the bath for a long time and it gets really soft? Well, imagine you stayed in there or imagine when paper gets wet, it just sort of falls apart. So my skin got, my one of my toes was degloved, like the whole chunk of the skin just came, just came off. off yeah so it's in the film it's not a race it's a war on youtube and there's loads of photos around that you'll see and my knee was painful and then i'm thinking the next day i've got to start at 12 o'clock it's like 45 degrees when i start three hours after everyone else my toes were just a mess and there are volunteers doc trotters they call them mainly all french doctors and nurses who treat feet who are amazing at what they do and like I became a bit of a celebrity because my toes were that messed up and every toe was taped up the the nurses and doctors used to do like smiley faces on my toes to try and (laughs) keep my morale up and we started the long day and I was hobbling I was literally at the back of the race because I was the last person in the race stomach bug from the day before still dehydrated we had a couple of climbs at at the first um, checkpoint got to the first checkpoint 10-11 k's in and then it was just getting really hot because it must have been like two o'clock, three o'clock. And I was just couldn't eat, couldn't drink, drank, ate, didn't do anything. And I was sort of like stumbling a bit. And this truck came past. This shows how delirious I was. This truck from the race came past and said, are you okay? And I waved them off as if I was like back in London, feeling good. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I'm like swaying and not really know who I am. A couple of kilometers later, they obviously went, yeah, okay, let's just wait for him. I come to the second checkpoint, which is like 20-something kilometers into the 85-kilometer day. I wasn't really with it. And they said to me, you've got a decision to make. We either pull you out of the race now and you're done, or we give you an intravenous drip, which you get a time penalty as well if you have intravenous drip in the middle of Sahara Desert that potentially saves your life. You get a time penalty. And if you can pee... After that, to show that your body's flushing the liquid out and functioning to a degree, then we'll let you go to the next checkpoint. So I literally just raised my arm and said, Take it. Hook me up. Three hours later, and about three hours of IV, which I found out from a doctor later on, says, well, normally that should take basically a whole day. Three litres, which is six six bags. Just pumped you full, basically. Yeah. And I like I see it at the time, and I thought it made sense. Like, I've got doctors holding up the bag, squeezing it. You know, I felt amazing because the intravenous... Yeah, you rehyd- pumped full. And then I just felt crap again, and then it turned dark, and then I had the rest of the double marathon to, to go, and... Um, I ran out of food for that day because I was carrying light to finish in the top 50. So I was only carrying an average of 2,200 calories a day total, not running, but total for the day. So I only allowed myself a certain amount of food for each day because I was out for longer than I initially expected. I ran out with like 20 k's to go. And if I ran faster, that meant I was burning more calories and I was getting more lightheaded and kept falling over. Just in a lose-lose situation at that Yeah, point. and then I finished at like three o'clock in the morning and I stumbled into bed and I woke up at like seven or eight and I'm just like, okay, I've got the whole day to rest before a marathon tomorrow. And I went back to see the doctors and they, they gave me more penicillin and they cleaned up my toes and everything and I hated life. <laughs> and I just thought, well... All I can do now is focus on the things that I can control and that's taking care of my feet. That's eating the food I have for today 
and putting one foot in front of the other for the next day. The marathon was, um, I got bumped out of the top 50 because of that, because of the three hour time penalty, which is the equivalent of about at that pointy edge of, edge of the of the race is about 50, 60 places. And then the next day I ran with one of my tent mates who's now one of my closest friends who, you know, I did this in 2012, came to my wedding. It was still good mates, we still catch up. So we ran together. And then the final day, yeah, we ran together again and finished. Yeah, my finishing photo, um, which I'll show you, was just behind you afterwards. It's just not one of relief. It's just like, I hated this. Mm. <laughs> but it was, there are two things that I came away from it. It's like, if I can finish this in the way that I finished it, like deep down in my gut, I went, there was this, there was this like little pilot light that lit on that came on and it was like, what else can I do? How soon after the MDS did you start thinking about what's next in terms of planning? I had a list of ideas before I went to the desert and it was a case of like, here's half a dozen cool things. So I had this idea of, and I pitched it to Discovery Channel actually because I had a friend of a friend who was the CEO of, of Discovery in Europe so she asked him, who, who do you, someone pitch to? And I got their email address. <laughs> and I was like, cool, they can't be upset at me because the, the CEO mm. gave me the address. And I was like, thanks. So I created this whole pitch of like the world's toughest races. And it was like the highest, the wettest, the driest, all these ultra marathons that I was going to do. And... Discovery was going to film it all and it was going to be on Discovery Channel. I was like, this is awesome. This is this is it. This is what's going to happen. And the guy's just like, yeah, cool idea, but I don't think you're a big enough profile, you know, which makes total sense. If I was in his shoes, I would have said the same thing because mm. it was basically this guy who was just pitching to them, I want to go and do all this cool stuff. You pay for it and <laughs> you make me famous, so to speak. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... I do want to say that I've never... Saying I want to be this endurance adventurer and have these books wrote and speaking and on television, whatever. The funny thing that I always tell people, and all my friends know this, is I've never wanted to be famous because I still want to be able to go to my local coffee shop and no one knows me. Mm -hmm. I'm truly an introvert. I truly am. And I love being by myself and I love just being with just a couple of my close friends and I'm not loud and, and boisterous when I'm with my friends. I'm just Luke and just chilled out. But I realized to live the life that I wanted to live by bouncing around the world, that it would have to be potentially, I might have to be in the public eye, you know, to facilitate this life. But in reality, like fame and fortune and anything like that didn't drive me. It was, I want to live this cool, adventurous life and do all these cool things, but I still want to go to, down to my local coffee shop and no one knows me. So that was like the fame and fortune, which I still don't have, is not a driving factor. But it was, um, yeah, it was, it was fun to sort of pitch this to Discovery and just like be turned down in a heartbeat and go, yeah, fine. Well, I'm going to figure out a way to do it myself. And the whole Nepal adventure came into, into mind. Talk to me about that because what I've read about that, it, that seems like a life-changing experience. People who know me and know about the adventures I've done and then people who haven't really known too much about my story and all these people I've just mentioned then read my book. 
Chasing Extreme, the two chapters, because it's, it's that mind-blowing, the two chapters that I wrote about Nepal, everyone says it's they're the most amazing chapters. Mm. Like They are the, the best parts of the book because, yes, it was life-changing and it was so random and so off the wall. And that's actually how my book started when I came back from Nepal. So remember I said I, I was pitched to discovery, I'm going to do the world's highest and the wettest and the coldest all these races. Well, the world's highest race was the Mount Everest Ultra Marathon. They have the Everest Marathon, but I'm like, I don't do a marathon, I do an ultra. I've done the MDS. You can do anything. Look at me. Still to this day, I've never done a marathon. You know, I tell people that. We did one this morning, but not not an official not, one. Not an official race. <laughs> so, yeah, so we, um, I only had done one year, the Everest Ultra, and it's not it's not on anymore. It only lasts about four or five years. Basically, you track up to Gorak Shep, which is the old base camp, so 5,200 metres above sea level, literally just like two kilometres down from the actual Everest base camp. And then you run the 65 kilometres that you've just trekked from Lukla, where the airport is, back down to the airport, so which is at 2,000... 800 meters above sea level still high extremely high but the starting line is start line is 65 kilometers from when you land and it's at 5200 meters above sea level i did some research and i saw there's a couple of ultra runners who have from nepal who have done quite well in races in hong kong uh, in malaysia i thought okay there's obviously ultra running there so i emailed the race director and said like totally random are there actually some elite runners that I could come out and live with for three or four weeks before we do the ultra? So I emailed him and he was like, yeah, sure. Two runners, you come out, you spend two weeks with one, two weeks with the other, and then you come to Kathmandu and then we go and do the Everest Ultra together. Those runners will come with you. And I'm like, hell yeah, I'll do that. Six weeks in Nepal, four weeks in the high up in the real mountains, no idea where I was going. I couldn't tell anyone in like in London. Couldn't tell my girlfriend at the time. She's like, "Where are you actually staying?" I'm like, "I don't. I'll, I'll know when I get there." Oh, it's so sketchy, man. <laughs> and uh, and then I said, "Yeah." And after like four weeks, where I probably won't have any phone reception. This is 2013. I said, "Yeah, I'll come back to Kathmandu. I should be able to contact you there after four weeks of being in the rural mountains, and then I'm going to trek up to base camp and then run back down." Yeah, so I went out there and um, lived in the in the rural mountains where if any Westerners had been in some of these villages, I would say it's a handful, if any, because I was I could imagine what an A-list celebrity um, feels when they walk down the main street of a major city. Everyone was just like coming to look at this guy, which was cool when I was like very polite and I... I, I really immersed in the culture as much as I could because I thought, this is awesome. Like, you don't see this. You don't read about it. Like, this is intense. No running water, no electricity, no toilets. So I got sort of the, the lay of the land and, you know, everyone had buffaloes and I was sleeping in a room next to buffaloes and I'm having dinner next to buffalo and goats and chickens and um, having buffalo curd for breakfast and with no electricity means no refrigeration and I bet they were so happy they were the happiest people some of the happiest people I've ever met in my life 
but every day was literally they'd live to survive. So they got up in the morning, okay, and it was milk the buffalo, take care of the animals, put them outside because they sleep inside the house, and then clean up a bit and start making breakfast. Now, making breakfast means creating a wood fire in a hole in the middle of the lounge room, okay? There's no chimneys or nothing. It's just like smoke goes up and they open the front door for a bit and then the smoke calms down and you come and have breakfast. Then they clean up and then they do a few chores around the house. Maybe, you know, the women will make something or if it's if it's um, market day, they'll take whatever they grow, like little potato-y type things down to the market or um, whatever day it is. And then they start cooking lunch. They've got to start the fire. They will boil the rice and then they'll cook all the vegetables and like all the different spices, sort of you know, Nepalese, Indian-fused sort of type of cuisine. And, uh, and then you have lunch and they clean up and they do a bit in the afternoon and then they start dinner again and then they clean up and they go to bed. Every day is about survival, but they're the happiest people ever because they, they have a purpose. They don't have really any distractions. When they sit down and have meals, that's when they sit and chat and talk about the day. Like I, I didn't really understand what they were saying, but I understood the tone of se- several conversations and the, ne- and the Nepalese runners would fill me in. And at the end of it, I understood certain things. Yeah, so they were so happy but they had nothing. You were there, you were in Nepal, you were with these ultra runners, you were going to do the race. How did it all play out? I had the first two weeks with one ultra runner and then he <laughs> he took me to like a, a town which is like a two buses and like six hours of travel. I met this guy, Upendra, like before I went away for the first two weeks and he was very close and it was very like, this is going to be hard to, he's a tough nut to crack. Like he didn't open up. We had we had like three or four hours at one day, and he just I was like, "Wow, this is going to be interesting." Difficult. But I tell you what, when you sit on a bus for like five hours driving in the middle of nowhere, six hours, sorry, from Kathmandu, and then he says, "Off now." And we both had packs. I had my pack that I was taking with me for the whole five six weeks, and he said, "Ah, oh, my house just over that hill," and you could see it was just like hills. It's a bit like North Wales. Where it's like you can see a couple of hills and a couple of hills behind them, but it's just like you know that's a long way to get to there. So anyway, he said, "Yeah, we'd climb over one and come down. We're walking the whole way, and he, and he's like, one more." I was like, "Yeah, okay, we did one more, one more." And I was like, "Yeah, I can see where this is going." Anyway, so we walked uh, ten kilometers, so six miles, and it took us about six hours. Because it was just slow going, slow going. And there was a lot of time of silence, but there was time of chatting. And when we got to his family house, uh, which was similar to the first one I went to, but a few tweaks different, because they're in different areas. of. It's a bit like going to the Midlands or to, like, Cornwall. Mm. Like There are a lot of similarities, but there are a few things that are a little bit different, just the way that they live their life and the type of food that they eat as well. But then he started to open up. And it was just amazing. I saw this whole other side of Upendra and and his family were just very different. His dad was a character. He'd go missing for a couple of days because basically he would go on <laughs> boozy trips with his mates. Like literally that was the case. He'd go down to, they lived on the top of this ridge and he'd go down to the bottom of the valley because he had mates down there and they would booze up for a couple of days and his wife wouldn't see him. <laughs> And then they'd come back up. They haven't got a mobile phone. He'd go, what was he doing now? No, to come and get a car back. No. But then one day, one afternoon, he'd been on the on the jard, which is the rice wine. And when I tried it, and they thought it was hilarious, and he'd had a few too many. 
and I could see them they were going back and forth and he was he was like laughing and cackling and saying stuff and I could see the mother was like she was like pissed off and I looked at Upendra and I said are they fighting because he's drinking too much and he saw his eyes went really white he says how did you know and I was like that's how my parents fight when my dad's had too much to drink so it was it was really fun it was quite playful and uh, I just realised that to be truly happy, you don't need all this material things that we have in the Western stuff. world. Stuff. And it's about spending time with people and it's about having a purpose. Mm. And at the time, I realized that on a superficial level, but now I live my life in a very different way to when before I went to Nepal. Um, I've applied many, many things that I learned out there because I spent time reflecting and understanding who I am as a person and the journey I've been on. And like one specific thing is when I got back from Nepal, I gave so much stuff away, like so much stuff. I could live out of a big backpack now, the amount of clothes that, that I have. Like you take out all my training kit and like my bike and all my running kit and whatever, I don't have a whole lot don't have a whole lot and it's like I don't need it yeah that was one of the biggest things I took away um, and then we went up to Kathmandu which was like it's a hectic city anyone that's been there will understand this it's full on it's it's manic and then went back there after being in the mountains for a month and I was like I wouldn't say like I was having like panic attacks but I was just a bit like I, I went from slow motion almost backwards to full throttle you got to remember there's cars when you're crossing the road yeah. stuff like that like that sort of oh my god I've just been living with nothing and now there is actually all of this still going on I spoke to um, a guy called Brendan Rendell I don't know uh, if you've heard of him I know yeah. Brendan yeah yeah who, who is going to run from the top of Africa to the bottom of Africa in a couple of years and he was saying um, when he did the run across, across Africa he came back and he went into the bathroom and he put the tap on and he cried. And he was like, this is just this is just mad because we have all of this stuff here in the Western world and we do take advantage of it. We don't need all of the superficial stuff we have, even the stuff we've got like running water and electric. We take that for granted. A lot of the world doesn't have that. No, that's exactly right. And I've chatted to Brendan briefly about this as well. I saw him in January. And it was the same for me in Nepal. I came back and I realized, wow, that's a luxury. Mm. I use that once a month and it's taking up a lot of space in, in my life and in, in my head. Like, I just get rid of it and I don't miss it. You know, and you, you get used to just using the same stuff all the time. And then when it's worn out and it's broken, then you replace it. You don't replace it and have three just because they're all different colors. And it's, I'm quite happy, and I'm lucky that my wife is, is similar to a, to a degree. She says, like, okay, you can put, you've got a hole in, in a pair of your trousers now that you can fit both fists through. It's time to buy a new pair. <laughs> Come on, mate. You yeah. need to go to the shops. Yeah, literally, or she would just turn up with a pair of trousers, like, okay, the old ones need to go. You know, it's not supposed to have a hole the size of your head in your crotch. <laughs> <laughs> would you say then that was the most life changing experience of your life? Oh, it's close. Most life-changing. In terms of perspective, maybe. Yes. Oh, from spending time in another place, yes, it's the, it's the most life-changing um, experience I've had. The reason why I'm a bit hesitant is because after 
the ultimate triathlon when I was forced to not do any exercise I spent 18 months not being able to exercise at all because of health reasons that period of time when I reflected and looked back on myself was the most life-changing experience because I realized I was running away from life I realized like I had to stop and I had to acknowledge my mental health and how bad it was at times. I had to reach out for help. I had to speak to speak up about certain things in life. And I really had to acknowledge where I was at, whereas I thought I was like living this great life. But in reality, it was a bit of a, a bit of a lie. I was a bit of like a, the Wizard of Oz. Like I was, look at me on the outside, but on the inside, I was still going through a lot. So that changed my life the most, but that was from personal reflection. You're kind of just putting a blanket over everything. Yeah. Putting a plaster on it, but it's not healing under it. Yeah, so I dug deep and did a lot of self-development work, mainly by myself. I did have some help, and that changed my life. The The person who I am today, in this moment, the catalyst was those 18 months after the Ultimate Triathlon. But in Nepal, from an experience, just an an utter experience, yeah, that was the most life-changing experience from that. It's the first time we've mentioned the ultimate triathlon. Oh. And we need to go there. (laughs) Where was this idea born? Let's start there. People think I'll make this up, but it was actually born a couple of weeks after I signed up to the Marathon Desires. So 2011. I did it in 2015. Remember, I signed up and I said, I want to be this big endurance adventurer. So I thought, I've got to do something big. I'll do something that's going to put me on the mat. That's going to like, people are going to pay attention to me. So I sat down at a, at a laptop, opened up Google Maps, and I looked at this world map. And as I said, at the time, I just retired from football. I had no like ideas of, oh, I want to do this or I want to do that. I looked at this map. <laughs> I love this. This, and I'm saying in like quotations here, you can't see it, this little stretch of Water, little, yeah, yeah, yeah. In quotations, yeah. This little stretch of water on a map that's like zoomed out on the laptop, so you can see it all. I thought maybe I could swim that. It just popped, popped into my into my eyes and just grabbed my attention. Maybe I could swim that. And it was a Gibraltar Strait between North Africa and the south of Spain. And I thought, oh yeah, that doesn't look too far. I could swim that. And I thought, well. The Costa de Sol, like the southeast coast of Spain. I've, I've heard that's pretty cool. Why don't I cycle that? That would be cool. I've got to buy a bike. But maybe I could cycle that. And I thought, well, swim, bike. Some of my friends in Australia had just started doing Ironman triathlons or, or started doing smaller triathlons and looking to do Ironman in the future, which I thought was just, like, crazy. And I thought, well, I've got to run now. Swim, cycle, run. And I thought, okay, I cycle across the southeast coast of Spain or along the southeast coast of Spain and Spanish-French border. I'll run along the south of France. Where's the next country? And hit Monaco. And in my head, I just went Morocco to Monaco. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do this. So then I spent the next couple of months researching, one, can people swim? Across the Gibraltar yeah, Strait. It's, it's like a shipping canal. Isn't yeah, it, so? exactly. It's 10 miles from point to point, but it's one of the most busiest shipping lanes in the world. So, yes, people swim it. And I was like, wow, it's a bike ride. People can cycle along that, sure. And I did the distances and I figured it out. And yeah, because the Spanish-French border 
to Monaco, it was shorter than the bike leg, which is what happens in a triathlon, and the swim's a lot shorter. So I did a bit of research, whatever, and I figured out it was about 2,000 kilometers or 1,300 miles. So I started to talk to my friends who are triathletes, and I was like, think about doing this in 12 days. Broke it up to like the swim on one day with like a 100K bike the same day, and then 300-odd kilometers on the bike. I never hadn't owned a road bike before in my life, never cycled more than like, couple of kilometers to a mate's house when i was a kid and i'm like yeah that sounds about right 210 miles 220 miles that's yeah, about right a day for like four days and then i'll run basically the equivalent of a double marathon every day for a week and i thought yeah sounds good 12 days and all my friends are like 16 days 15 days and i was like anyway so one of them said i reckon 15 days at a stretch and i was like what do they know doing it in 12 sticking to the plan for me this is one of the most insane challenges that I've ever talked to anyone about because you're essentially racing it. A lot of people don't really put a time limit on them. They just say, I want to do this. I want to get from A to B at some point. When you sat down with your team, like you said, you've got a brilliant team in London. When you said, right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. Stop telling me anything. I'm doing it. And I'm doing it in 12 days because I can tell that was probably your mindset at one point. Where do you start with the training? It's an unbelievable distance to squeeze into 12 days. So it was four years from conception to execution. Okay, so first of all, it's it was that long because I hadn't had any endurance um, sports background, mm. as, we, as we know. So I thought what I'm going to do over those four years is train for the ultimate triathlon during those years. So year one was... The Marathon de Saabs and the Marathon de Saabs because everything went to pot <laughs> afterwards. But I got a bike afterwards and I started to cycle. Then in 2013, I did more running at the start of the year with some cycling and joined a triathlon squad to learn how to swim actually as a swimmer, not just I can swim across the length of the pool and, you know, if I fall into water, I'm not going to drown. So 2013 was swim squad once a week, swim one to twi- once to twice a week, lots of running at the start of the year and then cycling. And I thought, okay, so I'm going to cycle 300 odd kilometers every day. Well, I want to know what it's going to feel like to cycle longer than that. So mentally, I'm preparing myself. So I created an adventure called Luke Learns to Surf because I thought it was funny that everyone assumes when you're an Aussie living in London or in the UK that you know how to surf. Well, I grew up in the middle of the country next to a dairy farm. (laughs) I didn't know how to surf. So I cycled from my... The plan was I cycled from my house in London down to Newquay in Cornwall, 412 kilometres, non-stop, took me 18 hours... On the bike, and I cycled 412 kilometers in a day. So I was like, okay, I know what 412 feels like. Horrible. Absolutely gross, yeah. And I've got to do less than that, which is great, for four days. So I was like, okay, I know what that distance feels like. I appreciate I've got to do it four days, but I know what it feels like. So it's almost like mentally tick. So it was just as much training my mind, which I'd always done as, as a kid uh, with that mental resilience and creating this mental framework, as I was training my body. And then 2014, I thought I should do a triathlon. 
I should see what it's... Yeah, just see what it feels like. Yeah, and so I was doing some ultra marathons. I did a 100-mile race, and I was doing some 10K ocean swims to see what it was like swimming in the ocean. And I thought, no, nah, 2014, 12-month out, I'm going to do a, a triathlon. I know where you're going here, and before you say what you're about to say and the triathlon that you picked to do, you just went in. You just went in. You didn't decide to go and do, oh, I'll do a 70.3. Oh, maybe I'll do an Ironman. You went double Ironman, but potentially the most, I mean, brutal by name, brutal by nature, the most brutal triathlon in the world. There's only one or two that I would put as a double Ironman that I would put in the same category. And that's, I think, been a little bit respectful to some of the bigger double Ironmans that are quite hilly. So, yeah, so basically I was uh, I was crashed at a friend's place at the time. Um, relationship breakdown, mental health plummeted, life was really shitty, still not talking about my depression. And I remember sitting on this leather chair and I thought, right, I'm going to do a triathlon this year. It was the beginning of 2014. And so I went to Google. Literally, you've set this up nicely. Thanks, Ben. I literally put into Google, world's toughest triathlon. That was going to be where I started. And what popped up? It was the fourth thing on the first page, and the name just grabbed me, and I said, I have to do this. And the name was the Double Brutal Extreme Triathlon. Mm. And I just went, that sounds about right. And I clicked on it, and it was a double Ironman. I thought, yeah, none of this Ironman stuff. I'm going to do a double. And I was like, Snowdonia. That's pretty hilly, isn't it? And I looked at the course profile, a lake swim. So that was flat. (laughs) And uh, 4,000 metres of climbing on the bike with 370 kilometres. And I thought, oh, well, I've cycled 412. And then they sort of really pitched this. It's like, you know, to entice people to do it. You finish the bike ride. The first thing you do on the run leg is you've got to summit Mount Snowden. <laughs> and then you come back down and finish a double marathon. And I thought, hell yeah. It was pricey. And I thought, ah, oh, yeah, you know, I'll eat some tins of chickpeas for a couple of weeks. And um, yeah, so signed up to that. In terms of training, life was still an inner turmoil. But in terms of training, I met a couple of guys who were on my Friday night swim squad. It was One of them was an Aussie guy, still great friend, Graham, and he would take three guys out for a Saturday morning long cycle. They were all training for Ironman, like for a, an Ironman distance race. And I'm training for the double, and they were just like, yeah, you're a nutcase, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that. Bear in mind, you haven't really done triathlon. I hadn't done a triathlon before in my life. No. And so it was a case of, okay, I can do a long bike ride on the Saturday with them. We, we swim on a Friday night. So this was my social interaction. Like people say, well, I'm training 20 hours a week. I'm training um, to make money. I'm, um, you know, these adventures weren't costing me too much money because I was getting uh, magazines to, to pay for some costs and I was getting some private sponsorship to just say, oh, can you buy me a flight to Nepal and I'll wear your kit because I've been commissioned to write a magazine article so there's going to be a photo in this running magazine with a pair of your with a t-shirt on and they would say okay yeah we'll buy your flight to nepal and give you a couple of t-shirts 
not making any money but it's not costing me too much so mm. this is how I was getting by I was training other athletes I was training people in a gym so I've got an exercise science degree so that's how I was keeping afloat um, just for context because I side thing here I hear people who do these big adventures and they talk about going to Nepal and going here and going there and I wonder like how do you fund this like where are you making money how like where does it come from Mm. so listeners might be thinking like oh he's probably just got a big bank account or people hear that I was a footballer and I think I must have like money from football it was literally I went all in and remember I come back from Nepal downsized life and it was quite literally if I had shelter and I had food I'm happy that's cool and it was like, okay, I'm training other people in the gym and like as a PT and training other runners and um, writing a few magazine articles and like hustling, pitching myself to brands to if I needed new trainers because mine had a thousand kilometers on them, see if I can scrounge around for a new free pair of trainers. So it didn't cost me any money. So the money I was making was going straight back into daily living plus if I needed a bit of extra kit or if I needed a flight or I needed to pay for this race entry, like the double Ironman, that's where it was going to. I was living off peanuts, Mm -hmm. but I had this idea in my mind, I'm going to be this endurance adventurer and once I finish the ultimate triathlon, that was my springboard and everything's going to start coming back to me. And I was doing talks about the Marathon de Sables in Nepal. I started to get a little bit of... Um, payment we're talking 50 100 200 pounds for a one hour talk i did a lot for free still do free talks so there was all these little bits and pieces but i was getting by on loose change Mm. pretty much so i just want to throw that out there because i know some people listen to these adventure stories and they don't get actually an idea of where all this funding's coming from i forget where we were at in the story oh the double brutal Sorry, I like to sort of throw that in there. Double Brutal, signed up, not really done any triathlon, training with these guys every week and uh, went up there with my crew. Um, So you had to have a crew with you for the race. And um, fun, fun little story, you had to have someone run up Mount Snowden with you as part of safety. After you've got off the bike, it's probably gonna be in the middle of the night and you had to have someone to run up there. Well, my crew who I trained with, they were all either doing a an Ironman at that time or a couple of weeks later or they weren't as good as runner as I was so I didn't want them to sort of slow me down I didn't try and race other people I just wanted to see what I was capable of I just want to throw the distances out there for people that don't know it's 4.8 mile swim yeah 220 I'm doing this off the top of my head 224 mile bike it was a bit longer but yeah roughly around around there yeah. and then a double marathon yeah double marathon so about 4,000 metres 5,000 metres of climbing on the bike and 3,000 metres of climbing on the run and I needed someone to run up Mount Snowden with me you know I think it's about 9 9Ks or 10Ks mm, depends on what trail you use. yeah so we, we use the really easy one like I'll, I'll the I'll, miners I think yeah, it, yeah, yeah, right next to the yeah. to the um, train line, yeah. and it's a Snowdonia Trail or whatever it is. It's a big one. Can't miss it. The story there. So I was like, I need someone to run up there with me. So I went out to Twitter. I threw it out there on Twitter. Yeah, so, so Ben's rubbing his face thinking, oh, no, what's going on here? Oh, 
That is part two done, and trust me when I say we are still just scratching the surface. As always, please do rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't yet. And part three will be with you at the same time next week.